If you have a Bible, grab it real quick. Maybe you got one laying around the house somewhere. Uh, we're going to put the text for this morning. Uh, there's actually three different places that we're going to be in the Bible. We're going to be in Matthew 21. We're going to be in Zechariah 9. We're going to be in Psalm 118. So if you're the type that likes to put bookmarks in all those places, do that now. Uh, but if you have a Bible of your very own, grab it real quick. We are going to put the text up on your screen. Uh, but there's just something special that God seems to do when you're holding his word in your own hands as it's proclaimed and declared. And so if you do have a Bible, go grab it and open it. Open it up to Matthew. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, give me a phone call this week or an email. Maybe we can do something about that. We might be able to fix that problem. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And, and listen, like, like we always want you to know God. That's what we're about here. That's, that's what drives us. But like, isn't it a really good season to know God right now? And so we would love for you to be reading the Bible as much as you possibly can right now. So grab your own copy. Matthew chapter 21. All right, so um, we finished our Roman series last week. Uh, we, we, we worked on it for about a year. We spent months and months and months walking through what, what I think is one of the most theologically dense letters in the Bible. All right, it's, it's just this massive, weighty thing. Uh, and if you had to try to kind of boil it all down to one single word, that word would clearly be justification, and it would win by a mile. Romans is all about justification. Um, that's really its theme. Uh, through Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross, uh, God declares or justifies, we would say, guilty sinners as righteous. And, and the theological term that we use to kind of unpack and describe that sacrifice is the, is the phrase penal substitution. Jesus took the penalty uh, uh, of our sin. He, he substituted himself and justice has been met. And it's one of the most massive truths of the Bible. And, and as somebody that, that God is kind of wired to be moved deeply by, by these big, massive truths, man, Romans and, and, and justification with it, those are two things that God just kind of uses to light me up. It excites my heart for him. It, it excites my heart in so many ways. And, 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 uh, we, and probably excites your heart in some ways, or at least many of you. Uh, we got several comments uh, throughout the course of that Roman series that just kind of encouraged me. But my absolute favorite um, came uh, last Sunday at the end of our time, uh, posted in the comments of the live stream, Mike Grady. Man, he said, and I quote, Romans has been a good friend to us. And man, I feel that in my bones. I agree, Mike. Romans has been a very good friend. But here's the deal. Many of you aren't wired the way I'm wired at all. Some of you uh, have been kind of designed by God, built out by God to be moved deeply by a different kind of thing. And so even though we've been banging the drum faithfully for a year now, justification, 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 the question does emerge out of that. Is that is that all that the gospel is? Like, like, is it only about justification? Is it just penal substitution? And the answer to that question is no. It's not. Now, now the gospel is never less than penal substitution. It's, it's just at the same time, a lot more than that. There are, there are streams within church history even playing out today uh, in our day and age where, uh, where the idea that Jesus making payment for our sins has been downplayed or in some places even outright uh, rejected uh, by those that claim to be the church. And we would 
clearly point to that and say that that's out of bounds. In fact, it's not only out of bounds, it's, it's not even good news. Right? If, if you lose Jesus paying for our sins, his sacrificial death in our place, then there's still something that stands between us and God. And it doesn't matter whatever else you want to celebrate, you're still having a bad day. All right? And so we need that. We desperately need that. And so the gospel is never less than penal substitution. It's never less than justification. But man, at the same time, it's also way way more than that. So on Wednesday nights, when there's not a virus to deal with during our normal rhythms of life, on Wednesday nights, uh, I get the privilege of teaching a Bible study for third, fourth, and fifth graders in our kids' ministry time. And just between you, me, and the internet, I absolutely adore that time. Like, I love it. I, I, it's one of the things that I look at during the season of quarantine, and I miss it. Like, there's, I miss getting to go to Chick-fil-A, and I miss getting to go to the coffee shop, and I miss getting to do this and that. Like, guys, I really, really miss getting to teach my third, fourth, and fifth grade kids Bible study every week. And, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because I get to act a little immature for, for about an hour, and that's, that's a good thing for me. It's kind of my love language. I need more of that in my life, and, the, and so the more rhythms of that I can work into my daily life and my weekly schedule, the more of those I can get, that's, that's good for my soul. But there's actually a second reason I absolutely adore that time, and it's because I use that time as an opportunity to try to figure out how to explain absolutely massive truths to little minds and hearts. I use that time to, to kind of unpack and figure out how to explain big kingdom of God realities to those that God is growing Hey, hey, you want to know how I describe the gospel to my third, fourth, and fifth graders? It's like a diamond. A diamond. Now, now, when you think of a diamond, what do you think of? Like, for some of you, it's, it's maybe the one on your finger. Maybe you're blessed with a really fancy engagement ring, and so you know what a real-life diamond looks like. For, for others, especially when I'm talking to kids, maybe it's just like on TV. Like, just, just honestly, what I picture when I think diamond is actually a cartoon engagement ring. A cartoon engagement ring. Like, I, I know you probably think I'm weird. You're not the first person to think that about me. There's, there will be more to come. Don't worry. All right, but in my head, what I picture literally is this right here. Look at that big old rock. Wouldn't you like to have this on your finger? It's, it's just a glorious engagement ring in all its cartoon glory, right? It's just this absolutely massive thing. But while describing the gospel as an engagement ring may be something that you've never really thought through, it's actually a really, really good illustration of what God's doing here. Um, it's, just this, it's just this really good thing, because when you spin a diamond around, you, you get to see it from all these different angles, right? And the hoity-toity word for it is facets. Right, uh, which is just a, a, a fancy word for face. Right, um, but uh, as you spin a diamond around, you get to see it from this angle, and you ooh, and you ah, and you go oh, look at it sparkle, and you spin it around this way, and you get to see it from this angle, and you go ooh ah, look at it sparkle, isn't it so lovely, isn't it so good and amazing? The gospel is like a diamond. You, you keep spinning it around, and you get to see it from all of these different angles, but it's still the same glorious, valuable 
thing, penal substitution, Jesus' death on the cross to absorb the penalty for our sin, is one really, really pretty, incredibly important facet of a larger gospel diamond. A larger gospel diamond. And so beginning today, well, beginning today, I want to spend the next couple of months spinning the diamond a little bit. I want to put it on a pedestal and begin to rotate it and go, look at that face. And look at it from this angle. And look at it from this angle. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it valuable? How great is our God that he would give us such a jewel? So you ready for the ride? So what's our angle for the, for the morning? What's our angle today? The gospel is a promised reality. A promised reality. Matthew chapter 21. So if you don't have much of a church background, uh, the Sunday before Easter is historically known as Palm Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate when Jesus arrives into, into Jerusalem. He's been uh, making his way uh, in and around the northern region above there, uh, but he makes his way to Jerusalem uh, a little less than a week before he is arrested and ultimately killed. And, and Jesus has been traveling in the region north of there, in and out of the region of Galilee. All right? He's been walking around. He's been doing all these kinds of things. He's gathered a, a following of people and he's been pre preaching powerfully and teaching with authority and he's been working some miracles and everybody's kind of impressed with that. Uh, but then he's also done some other, you know, little things like claiming to be God. I mean, what'd you do this week? Did Jesus claim to be God? That's, a, that's no small deal. And so one of the things that non-Christians often don't seem to understand about Jesus is that there's not really any kind of middle ground with him. There, there's no... there's. There's no middle ground. You either believe him and the work that he's doing, and so you begin following him, or you think he's a whack job spewing blasphemy who probably ought to be stopped before he hurts somebody. There's not really an in-between. Those are really your only options if you take what he says seriously at all. And so Jesus has followers, and Jesus has very real enemies very real enemies. He's been traveling around in the region to the north, in and out of Galilee, but he eventually starts making his way to Jerusalem. And, and, and Luke tells us in his account, this, his version of this account, that, that Jesus set his face like flint to go there. It was his sole ambition. And as the buzz around him begins to, to build, and, and as the, the vitriol on the edges begins to increase day by day, Matthew 21 occurs. Look at verse 1 with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. All right, so let's call a time out there. All right, so Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, and he gets to a small village called Bethpage. We know that it's near, uh, we don't know exactly where Beth and, uh, Bethpage is, but we know uh, that, that it's near another village that both Mark and Luke, I think, uh, both mention as sister villages, Bethany. All right, and we know exactly where Bethany is, so we're pretty sure where Bethany pages. And we think that it's a little less than a mile east of Jerusalem. So Jesus is almost to the finish line here. We also know that both Bethany and Bethpage are on what's called the Mount of Olives, which I'm sure you'll be totally shocked to learn is a mountain with olive groves on it. You're welcome. That's, that's why I get to be the guy proclaiming the word, right? I have answers like that. Um, so here's, here's the deal about the Mount of Olives and why it's special. It's, it's a taller mountain, than the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. And it's really, really close. Which means that as you crest the hill and begin making your way to Jerusalem, you're looking down on the city. But not just the city. The temple is on that side of town. So you, you're looking down on the temple complex. You crest the hill on the Mount of Olives and you get this grand view of Jewish life. This is the defining place for God's covenant people. Jesus gets near to Bethpage. He's not quite there yet. And he calls a timeout. He says, hey guys, I need a colt. Somebody go get me a colt. So he calls a couple of his boys over and he sends them on to the village. He tells them what they're going to find when they get there, right? He says that you're going to immediately, he uses the word immediately, you're going to immediately find a donkey tied up with her colt. Untie them, start heading this way, and the owner of those animals, he's going to have some questions for you. Namely, hey, what are you doing with my animals? Right? Tells them what they're going to say. The Lord has need of it. And then he's going to give you permission. And then, after that, you're going to head on back to me and bring me the colt. Got it? Good. So what do the disciples do? They head on to the village. They find the donkey and its colt tied up, just like Jesus said. They start untying it, just like Jesus told them to do. The owner comes out. Hey, where are you taking my animals? The Lord has need of them. Oh, okay. They bring them on back to Jesus. And in that story, we could, could point to a couple of really big things. Uh, for one... I mean, this story plays out exactly like Jesus said it would. Like, like if you're on the fence about Jesus and whether or not he really ought to be taken seriously, like, you kind of need to deal with that part. Jesus, these things happen exactly like Jesus said they would. I mean, there, there are only a few options for you to go with. Either Jesus is really, really lucky, or he's a prophet that saw the situation play out before it happened. And both of those are possible, I guess, but Jesus, he... He goes with a third option himself. He's sovereign and Lord over not only what animals are in the next town, but also how they'll be found. And also he's Lord over the owner and his sense of generosity. The word Jesus uses, the Lord has need of them. And that's the second thing we could point to about this story. Jesus, Jesus clearly calls himself Lord here. And that's enough. 
So we could point to Jesus' authority, and we could point to his power, and we could point to the, the, uh, his understanding of all the fine details coming into the whole. We could point to those things. Jesus is certainly on top of every single one of those things. But Matthew, in his gospel account, his version of this story, he wants to point to something different. He doesn't point to Jesus' prophetic understanding, and he doesn't point to Jesus' lordship. Matthew decides to point to something else. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, But these things took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Then he mashes two Old Testament quotes together. The first couple of words come from Isaiah 62, but about 99% of what he says next comes from Zechariah chapter 9. Hey, hold your finger in Matthew for a second. Hold your finger in Matthew. We'll come back to it. Uh, but turn over just real quick to the book of Zechariah. Um, if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. Use your table of contents. That's allowed, especially when you're at home. It's allowed in this room too, but when you're at home, nobody's watching, so use it. All right? uh, but uh, Zechariah is just a couple of books to your left. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Zechariah is in the Old Testament, so go to the left. You'll get to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then right before Malachi is Zechariah. So you don't have to go very far. All right? uh, Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. The prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion's a a nickname for the hill that God's people live on. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, or righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Verse 15, and the Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grains shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. All right, so Zechariah is written uh, after God's people come back from what we call the Babylonian exile. God carted them off to Babylon for a couple of generations because of generation after generation of their unrepentant sin. But now, Now they are back in the land, but things are just off. They're just off. They're they're not like before they left. The, The blessing of the Lord has left them. The nations surrounding them are mighty. Uh, They're nothing but a vassal state of someone else's empire. And then in chapter 9, Zechariah starts talking about a coming king who will ride victoriously into the city on the colts of a donkey. This king will be the epitome.
epitome of both humility and power. Humility and power. He will bring salvation with him and he will forever make all things new. And on that day, the call for God's people, uh, uh, Zechariah calls them to celebrate, to rejoice. Behold your king, he says. So now back to Matthew. Back to Matthew. Jesus gets to, to Beth Page and he calls for a cult and he works sovereignly over the bringing of that cult to him. And he starts riding down the mountain into town. He begins the descent. Hey, you think some people paid attention to that? Think some people noticed? You th- the one that claims to be Lord and God starts riding down the hill into town like a victorious king who's there to save the city? Think some people took notice? How about this? You, th- you think that no man's land between either loving Jesus or hating Jesus got a little wider that day? You think Jesus is parting the waters just a little further? So Matthew keeps going. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road so they know what to do there. Verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the crowd's getting worked up. They're, they're throwing down their cloaks for the, the colt to walk on, which is a really weird thing to do if you like your cloak. But it's a sign of submission to someone way more important than you, a king. We usually think in terms of kneeling, but it, it's the same thing, right? We're also told in other accounts that they're waving around palm branches. They're submitting to this king in celebration. This is not simply a a king is passing through, so everybody take the knee. No, they're rejoicing. They are shouting aloud. And what are they shouting? Hosanna. Hey, what's Hosanna mean? It means, oh, save us. Oh, save us. It's pulled directly from 2 Samuel 14. But all the stuff coming after that, It's a direct quote from somewhere else, Psalm 118. All right, hold your finger in Matthew. Turn to Psalm 118 with me. Uh, Again, if you're new to the Bible, it's going to be kind of in the middle. So if you like hold your Bible like this and just open it up to the middle, you're probably in the Psalms. All right. Uh, And so if you uh, see uh, if you see Proverbs, go to your left. If you see Job, go to your right, uh, and then you'll make it there. Then find Psalm 118. So Psalm 118 is all about God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. And beginning in verse 19 of this psalm, the writer says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So... The crowd gathering around Jesus as he rides victoriously into town. They start chanting the words of a psalm written hundreds of years before this moment about being saved by God's steadfast love uh, through the actions of a righteous one who was initially rejected but has now become the cornerstone. Interesting. Hmm. Is there any doubt at all, any doubt at all, as to why in Matthew 21.10 he tells us that the whole city was stirred up? The whole city was stirred up going, who is this guy? Who, who is this? They, they knew their Bibles. They put the pieces together. Jesus rides into town as a victorious king. And at least some of the people are starting to get the picture. Some very much aren't. It's going to go bad here in a few days. But this is who Jesus is. Church family, the, the events of Holy Week that we're all getting ready to celebrate here, they, they are a promised reality. A promised reality. They're, they're not simply being made up as Jesus goes along. Oh no, 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 no. The whole Old Testament was pointing to this moment, this moment. Generation after generation after generation. Prophet after prophet. God was working towards this moment. It's not some plan B. It's not some patch job. No, this was in the works since before the garden. Before the garden, the gospel, the, the steadfast love of God to save you by his own righteousness is a promised reality. A promised reality. And nothing, absolutely nothing, could ever stand in the way of that. Nothing. Nothing could ever undermine that. Nothing could ever overthrow that. Nothing could ever outsmart that plan. He has promised it. And listen, this, this is a promise that I desperately need to hear this week. Desperately need to hear, because, like, how in the world do you celebrate Holy Week through a screen? Like, how, like how do you do that? Can, can I just be honest with you here? I, I don't have enough creativity in me to come up with a better plan than getting everybody in a room and celebrating So just to reveal a little bit of a pastor's heart for a second, like, 
my first instinct, my knee-jerk reaction as all these quarantine things started ramping up was to feel like we got robbed of Easter this year. Why would you take that from your people? Right? God, why would you do? But this is exactly why we all need to continually remind ourselves of the promises of our God. Who could ever rob him of anything? Who could ever be stronger than him? Who could ever be smarter than him? Who could ever uh, outmaneuver him? Who could ever rob him of anything? The one who is sovereign over a donkey's cult hanging out in Bethpage 2,000 years ago is the exact same one who is sovereign over the writings of Zechariah and Isaiah and Samuel and whoever the heck wrote Psalm 118 a, hundred, a couple hundred years before that. And listen, he's also just as sovereign over whatever is coming down the pipe for us today. He's no different. He doesn't change. He's still in complete control, despite whatever the circumstances that are swirling on around us that we can't control. Oh, guys, he's the one who makes promises, and he is absolutely the one who keeps them. He's the one who keeps his promises. He is the one who is mighty to save, and he is the one who will, is forever worthy of our celebration. And so what that translates to is this. Whatever we are able to make that celebration look like this week, it's sufficient. Because he hasn't asked us to gather in a big room and celebrate. He's asked us to celebrate, to trust his promises and lean into them. Because he is good. And because he came and he died and he rose again just like he said he would. Or as one of my favorite songs says, but there's, because there's no power of hell nor scheme of man that could ever pluck me from his hand, right? Who could ever step onto the scene that he has not already accounted for and graciously provided for? Oh, church, our king is coming. He's coming. He is victorious over sin and death, just like he said he would be. And guess what? He, he makes a lot of promises for today, too. Think he's faithful? You think he's capable of following through with what he said he would do, despite what we can't control? So spin that diamond just a little bit this week and rest deeply in his goodness and rest deeply in his promises to you. If you're watching this this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that, that's your response. That, that's your response. To trust his promises, first and foremost, what he has already done for you to, to make way for salvation. Can, can, can I lovingly ask you a pointed question, though? Um, how have you handled the last couple of weeks? Like, like how are you doing? Do those around you see a trust that can't be robbed away by earthly things when they're taken away from you? When they pile up around you. Just be honest, I've had to fight that off a few times this week. How about you?
Repent of sin this morning and lean in to what he reveals about himself in Matthew 21. He is humble and he is good. He is righteous and he is eternally victorious. Nothing that we're dealing with now could ever slow that down. Nothing. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to put action to that response. Do something with it. Maybe you're watching this and you're a follower of Jesus, but you need to respond in some different kind of way. Maybe it's to, to, to be obedient in baptism. Maybe it's to, to join this uh, faith family, this church. Maybe it's to say yes to the call of missions that God is laying in front of you. There's all these different ways that you can respond. Use this time to do that. If you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging around. I don't think that's an accident. I think, I think God's working in this, and I think God's working in you. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. Your sin, it separates you from a holy God, but listen, God has done something about that. He has made a way where there was no way. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt that your sin owes, and he gives you his righteousness in return. And so he now calls on you as the conquering king to respond to him in repentance of your sin and faithful trust in him. Repentance is a, a turning away from your sin and a turning to Jesus. Faith is just the Bible's word for trust. It's a trust, though, that calls on him to save you from that sin. And you could do that right now. Yes, even through a screen. God's big enough to work out those details. He's not daunted by that. You can respond to that right now. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to, to respond to God's word and to the gospel's call. Under, under normal circumstances, I'd be down at the front here calling people to come forward. We can't do that today. I kind of miss that. But listen, that doesn't mean we can't talk. Call me. Email me. I'd love to walk you through what that response of faith looks like. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all use this as a time to respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Palm Sunday. And we could really be upset about being scattered all over a region instead of gathering together for a celebration that deserves all kinds of good things. But you haven't called us to gather. You've called us to celebrate in this moment. So whatever that celebration looks like, would you bless it and would you use it for your glory? Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Would the gospel take deep root in people's hearts in this moment? Father, as we all respond to your word, would you help us lean into your promises? When I make promises, I hope I can fulfill them. You have never failed. 
and you will never fail. Help us see that. I think we'd trust you a lot easier if we did.